Welcome to the Myth, Legend, and Lore podcast. And emerald green, and the light with rainbow swirl, obsidian and night black pearl. Hum, 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 hum. Gold of air with sun bright hue, silver just like drops of dew. Copper filled with fiery glow, and iron to dig deep below. Lead the earth to dry as bone, till we've broken every stone, till the secret depths are known. Today, I am delighted to welcome emerging new author Joshua Gillingham, who has written the fantasy adventure novel The Gatewatch. Drawing from Norse mythology and the sagas, he has crafted a world layered with high adventure, friendships and loyalty, and venturing into realms inhabited by beings of magic and mystery. Not only is Joshua a writer, but he is an accomplished musician. The piece that you've just heard is called The Song of the Nidavell, and you'll be able to hear the full-length version at the end of this episode. Hi Joshua, thank you so much for coming on today's episode. I've had the pleasure of reading samples from your novel The Gatewatch and listening to chapters from the audiobook as well. And what's really clear is your ability of storytelling, it comes across so well. Tell me, have you always written or was this just a project where you thought I need to sit down, start writing and tell this story? Yeah, I've always been a storyteller, but there was something about this story. Uh, it was kind of in my early 20s, end of university, and I'd done some writing, uh, creative writing courses and things like that. But I really feel like I had a story to tell, and I really wanted to sit down and uh, do it right. I had many sort of false starts and failed attempts. Uh, I had a general idea of what I wanted to write about. At the time, I was uh, just discovering the Norse myths and uh, sagas of the Icelanders, and I found those things really inspiring. So I was trying to weave some of the elements of those into my story. Um, But I found I would start and stop, and I would get a few chapters in, and I'd throw it out and start over again. And uh, it was only in the past two to about two and a half years that I really was able to kind of sit down and focus my ideas, get into a more strict writing schedule, and get the story down on paper. Oh, wonderful. You know, I think I was the same way when I started writing as well. Um, And then you find your groove and suddenly everything just kind of falls into place. Um, So would you be able to describe a little bit more about the plot of The Gatewatch uh, for the listeners and also the song of the Nidavell? So The Gatewatch is a modern troll hunting saga. It's inspired by the Norse myths and the Icelandic sagas, as I mentioned before, and uh, takes place in the town of Gatewatch, which is this remote community um, high up in the mountains and in the realm in which the story takes place. uh, The wilds beyond their borders are very dangerous and they're full of things like bears and trolls. But worst of all, um, uh, as the characters discover, there's another threat. Uh, A giant has returned to the area whose father once sort of ruled over the land um, with an army of trolls and he wants to reclaim his father's throne. And so the characters are faced with this threat. Uh, The giant would like to uh, reclaim his father's inheritance and destroy all of Gatewatch. 
In terms of uh, the plot of the story, it begins with the three main characters, Torin Tentries, Bryn, and Grimsa, and they're making their way up to Gatewatch um, to become troll hunters. Uh, they're pretty soon thrown off course by a troop of dwarves, and their adventure begins. They uh, uh, end up going underground, they end up hiking over mountains, through wild forests, they're captured by trolls, they escape, um, and uh, uh, they discover that this, uh, this giant has come back to take over. And so um, the story really boils down to what do you do when something terrible is happening and nobody else seems to be doing anything about it. They find out about this giant returning. They even try to convince other people that it's happening, uh, but they don't believe them. And so uh, it's kind of through their adventure that they're able to save Gatewatch just in the nick of time. Um, uh, uh, there's a lot of ups. There's a lot of downs. Uh, as I wrote it, it was kind of funny. I always thought I knew where the characters were going, and something would throw them off course again. And, okay, here we go. Now we're off on this uh, uh, other adventure. But um, uh, uh, overall, I hope readers will enjoy it. Um, it's quick-paced, and uh, it's a lot of fun. As a, as a writer of fantasy, um, the world that you've created in Norris is, com is really complex. It must have been quite an undertaking to have give it so much detail in your characters as well. Did you have a clear idea of how you wanted their realm to look? You know what? I I thought a lot about it. I did, and I think a lot of fantasy writers do. You know, they sketch out maps and they uh, maybe kind of create pieces of language, and there's all the cultural elements to deal with. In my case, all the false starts that I had, I, I realized at some point were boiling down to that I was starting the story kind of in the middle, and I needed to tell the beginning. And so, the Gatewatch actually is a, a prequel to the story that I intended to tell, and kind of became uh, a story in its own right. So. Um, uh, it's exciting now to work on the sequel, uh, which is the story I kind of originally set out to tell. Um, but it was an amazing kind of journey to, uh, to to fill out the world, really discover it for myself, and sort of reveal it to readers through the Gatewatch. Another part that I really enjoyed is when the characters reach uh, Fjellhall. Um, I thought that was wonderful. You could really get a sense of everything that was going on inside the hall. So you could smell the food, you could hear the chatter of everybody, the drinking, and it was just wonderful description. Um, so... Was there anywhere that was sort of a source of inspiration for you there? Yeah, so there's uh, places from the myths that inspired it partly. There's places in real life that inspired it partly. Um, from the myths, obviously, it draws on a lot of elements of um, Valhalla, right? This sort of endless mm. supply of like food and drink and people are feasting. Sure. Um, uh, there's a specific event in the book that um, uh, uh, was inspired by... Um, a story I know you and I both love, uh, Thor travels to Utgard, where um, he goes to this giant's hall and there's some contests, there's races and there's um, uh, uh, drinking contests. And so it's inspired by that. Um, physically though, uh, to be honest, we went on a trip to Norway in 2015, uh, it was awesome, my wife and I. Um, and in Bergen, there is an old Viking hall, like a Viking king actually hosted feasts in it. It's been sort of, um, was used, uh, it's almost, almost a thousand years old. It's it's, it's like it's old wow. and it's been revamped. Um, a part of it was even destroyed in, in uh, World War II during the occupation, but that's been rebuilt. Um, and it's called the Hackenshallen. And so you walk in and it's this, um, uh, sort of the walls are made of stone and arches um, uh, are really high up. And then there's these wooden rafters that just sort of like float so high above you. It's kind of hard to believe they could even uh, build that. Um, in below you can tour. There's like, uh, there's like medieval kitchens and stuff where they had um, kind of all the food cooking down in below. Um, so yeah, all those elements kind of were drawn together to create sort of this ultimate Viking hall that field hall becomes in the story. Oh, yeah, it sounds like the perfect material, actually, just for the whole creation of it. It's wonderful. 
And I know we've pre- previously talked in the past about Norse mythology and how it has inspired writers and musicians and artists alike. And um, you kind of touched on it briefly there, but what is it about the myths and the sagas that really captures your imagination? Um, and I know that we like that story about Thor, but um, are there other stories and characters that stand out for you? So the characters in Norse myths, I just, yeah, I find so inspiring. There's so many different characters with such, you know, powerful traits and features and yet such sort of gaping weaknesses. Um, and so, you know, you've got like Odin, who's like all wise, and yet he knows that he's doomed, right? Mm. Um, Thor is so strong, and no matter how much he tries to keep order, things always sort of spin out into chaos. And, um, you know, this Freya, she's so beautiful and uh, powerful, and yet she's also, um, is just never satisfied. She's got this lust for for gold and for power, um, like so many other gods do. And then there's Loki, who you can't really pin down. And I think Loki's probably the, uh, 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 the favorite for most people as they're reading through. Yeah. He's a trickster. He's funny. He's always sort of throwing the gods off balance. So from a character perspective, I mean, the Norse myths are just a treasure trove of uh, different personalities. But I think overall, um, specific stories obviously inspire me. But just the narrative itself, mm. um, particularly Ragnarok, uh, the gods know that they're doomed and it's kind of foretold and it, it's kind of woven into their day-to-day. Um, uh, it's always hanging over their heads. And I wonder sometimes if... Maybe I relate with the gods on that level, um, sort of with environmental crises or sort of uh, political catastrophes that are happening. There's always kind of seems to be this doom hanging over our heads. And I've always appreciated in the myths how at Ragnarok, they sort of, they confront their final doom. They know it's going to happen, but they kind of rush headlong. They're not running away. They're not kind of trying to sedate themselves or or avoid the, the inevitable end, but they sort of kind of face it. And so, um, mm-hmm. yeah, many different levels uh, are there, I think, for me on the Norse myths on why I find them inspiring and intriguing. I just keep reading them again and again. Yeah, I think so. I think um, you can go back to those stories and always find something new. Um, yes. I, I think for me, my um, the myths or the, the, the two that kind of really stand out is the creation myth and Ragnarok. Yes. It's kind of from chaos to destruct, destruction and it's just it's so, so impressive the way that it's been written. And I know we're both fans of the um, Kevin Crossley Holland um, book. That's absolutely marvellous. And I do encourage people to, to pick that up if they haven't done so already. So, uh, do you think that you were kind of you're naturally drawn to mythology and legends and folklore? Yeah. So, having a myth for a basis, some people think that's kind of strange. Um, there's sort of a tendency for some to say, "Well, the myths are kind of um, just they're just made up. They're not true." and imply somehow that because they're maybe not literally true and that they actually happen, that they don't matter. But I think myths are so fascinating. I think they tell us um, about ourselves. And I think particularly with the Norse myths, um, if you're interested in Viking culture, I think they tell you a lot about the people who told them, sort of the characters they put up on pedestals and the uh, uh, the kind of troubles that the gods had, I think, in many ways reflected the kind of troubles that they had, right? Yeah. Um, kind of a harsh environment and uh, um, kind of these feuds, uh, those sorts of things. So, um, yeah, and I think it's an important medium as well. Some topics that are maybe a little bit too uh, sensitive to approach uh, head on at times or that uh, are a bit inflammatory can sometimes be approached maybe through the metaphor of myth and um, people can kind of be brought to seeing, uh, can be brought to see that uh, uh, maybe there's some, some issues, yeah, particularly with the Norse myths, obviously, mm-hmm. politically, there's a history there that uh, you have to be sensitive about. Um, and uh, not just avoid, though, I think address and, um, and work through. Um, I, I know in particular, one of my characters um, takes the very sort of traditional from the Norse myths perspective, um, 
stereotypical view of the dwarves. And so mm-hmm. um, uh, when he first encounters the dwarves, he thinks that they are um, swindling, conniving thieves. And uh, throughout the book, uh, they meet several dwarves, and some dwarves are like that. <laughs> uh, another one, actually, they, they befriend and becomes kind of uh, uh, part of the troop. And this character kind of goes through a transformation to seeing that um, not all dwarves are like that. And this this dwarf actually gets saves their lives at one point in time. So um, uh, uh, watching that character go through that transformation, even though it's in the context of uh, 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 the Norse myths, which see dwarves typically only in one way, mm-hmm. I'm hoping a modern reader can kind of work through that and, and, and see that, uh, yeah, it's a way to tackle more modern issues too. Absolutely. I think um, the myths and the poems and things are a fantastic way to um, read about different characters and they're kind of dual personalities. Some of them can be really morally ambiguous as well. And even though you kind of start off thinking, OK, this is the hero of the start of the story or the, nor- the narrative here, you can that can change. Your opinion of that can change quite quickly. Oh, yeah. As I was reading, I have to say that I really enjoyed the characters of Torrin Tentries, Bryn and Grimsa and their friendship and the overall camaraderie, the brothership that they have and the, the conversation and banter that they share is really entertaining. <laughs> it's really good, I have to say. So I guess in some way, did the Norse myths help to craft that kind of aspect of their characters as well? Oh, definitely. Yeah. So they are sort of the three central characters of the book and their personalities are actually inspired. Torn's inspired by Odin. Mm -hmm. And so he's got certain traits, like he's he's kind of the leader of the bunch and he's uh, obsessed with riddles uh, and and very kind of sly. And uh, that uh, plays a big part in the story. Um, Grimsa uh, is uh, is a giant of a man. He's very strong, very stubborn. He's sort of a Thor-like character. And uh, Bryn is inspired by Loki, uh, uh, very tricky, very handsome, uh, winsome. And uh, that also plays into the story as they as they go together um i originally thought they could maybe be brothers um but in reading um uh, sort of sagas and myths and different uh, historical things i'm, I'm intrigued by the, the sort of the viking cultural approach to um fostering and so oh. um throughout the story um Torin's father's kind of um a bit more of a wealthy uh man he's the the lord of tentry hall and he actually fosters both Bryn and Grimsa. And so Torin and Bryn and Grimsa would have grown up like brothers. Um, and uh, uh, to my understanding, this, this idea of fostering was actually quite common um, between different families, which is not something that you see today. When your son is 12 years old, you don't send him to go live with somebody else to you know, yeah. learn new things and, and see the world. Um, but I thought that was really cool and uh, an element I could work into the story. Yeah, I have to say, I really like that, actually. That's something I've been kind of doing a lot of research on um, myself is kind of fostering and childhood and the Viking Age and things like that. And it's really, really oh, yeah. a different setup than kind of what we would um, kind of really understand today. But it was a really good way to introduce um, children to learn crafts and abilities and skills that they were going to need later in life that possibly they couldn't have gained at home. So I really like that, actually. That's a really interesting kind of um, aspect that you've got going there. And I also want to ask you about how disciplined you are when, when you work. Um, are you quite kind of structured? Do you have a schedule that you stick to? Or do you find yourself kind of in the moment and that's it, you're writing for days and weeks? Or you know, how, how do you find you work best? Yeah, you know what? Um, different things work for different people. But for me, uh, the game really changed. It was actually a book I read. Uh, it's called The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. And uh, he's got a, a sort of specific angle on how you should approach your life as an artist. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, uh, he has a certain way of, of thinking about uh, your own creative work and sort of taking it seriously or uh, going pro, as he would say. Um, 
so for me, one of those things was I, I stopped writing on weekends and I, to this day, I still don't write on weekends. Um, and I know, um, well, that's the time that some people feel like it's the only time they have to work. I actually worked my writing schedule into my work schedule. And so, um, uh, I, Monday to Friday, I would get up an hour earlier than I usually would. And I would take that time to write. And if I was working that day, I would write. And if I wasn't working that day, I wouldn't write. And uh, a few things happened. Uh, first off, I just, I began to produce so much more than I had before. Like I was just always making progress. Whereas before there was a lot of stops and starts and mm-hmm. kind of reverse kind of almost one step forward, two steps back sort of thing. Um, uh, but there I felt like I got on a roll. I felt the shorter chunks of time also helped me to write, uh, uh, more quality. Um, and as the, as the story kind of gets more intricate and the adventure has its ups and downs, I was able to track, uh, what exactly was going on and how they were going to get out of things or into things, uh, a little bit better. Oh, absolutely. I think it's really vital to have a discipline and then it's much easier for you to get back into that writing groove again after you've taken a bit of a break from it and keep the threads of, of your kind of your storyline working together and not having to retrace your steps all the time. So well done. Yeah. I'm, I'm impressed with your, your discipline. It's fantastic. <laughs> so I also wanted to ask you today about how you feel about the art of storytelling and how it's changed in its place in today's society. I know that through this podcast, it's a hope of mine to bring the tales of myth, legend and lore alive and pass on some of the wonderful stories that I heard while I was growing up or have gathered along the way. Yeah, I know. Stories are so important. And um, I actually had a really interesting conversation with uh, another writer the other day um, who has her PhD in in Viking um, poetry, which I think is a really cool thing to take for school. Oh, absolutely, so I go back yeah. to school. <laughs> I think I totally do that. But um, uh, her thesis was on sort of um, the audience for stories. And she talked about how in, uh, you know, back in the Viking age, often your audience would be a smaller group of people, mm-hmm. um, you're rather intimate. It was probably inside some sort of, uh, uh, either a turf or sort of wood hall with a fire around the middle. Uh, perhaps it was in winter and you were kind of trapped, um, in there because of the weather for long periods of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that affected the, the, the kinds of stories they told and how they told them. Um, nowadays, most people get their stories, I think from books or from movies and the medium has sort of changed and mm-hmm. the audience is much wider. So, uh, um, some things, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's nice to be able to speak to a larger audience, but I think you lose some things too with the, the intimacy, uh, even the spoken word. I'm a big fan of audiobooks, and I feel like they've brought back an interesting, um, perspective on storytelling for me in the Gatewatch, um, I wanted to model the story off of maybe something that would be told on a cold winter night, you know, in a, uh, far off hall in ancient Scandinavia. And so, uh, I made a few decisions. Um, one of them was that it was going to be a linear storyline. So we weren't going to be hopping back and forth in time. Um, we weren't going to be switching uh, character perspectives. We we're going to stick with the one character kind of all the way through um, uh, just to sort of give it that uh, sort of like, let's sit around the fire and let me tell you a tale type uh, 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 type feeling. So, yeah, there was definitely um, uh, a lot of influence there in terms of how the story was told even. Um, and uh, uh, I, I was happy with how it came together. At first I worried, you know, is it going to be too simple? But I think um, with the pace and uh, uh, kind of all the things that are happening as the characters go along in their adventure, I think, um, yeah, I think it came together well. This is usually the part in the podcast where I would say that I'm going to close the episode with a piece of myth, legend, or lore. And today I'm actually going to hand that over to you. But before we do that, is there a way that we can keep up to date with any news or events and things that are happening with you online? 
Yeah, so um, I, I, I'm hoping to have some very exciting news in the next <laughs> week or two about um, uh, where you can get a copy of the Gatewatch and when that's going to come out. Um, I can't say anything yet, though. Uh, uh, I'm going to have to leave that one for today. But uh, if you'd like to stay in touch with me, I'm on Twitter at uh, Josh M. Gillingham. I'm on Facebook at um, The Gatewatch Novel, and I'm also on my website uh, updating my blog on writing, interviewing authors about writing um, at joshuagillingham.ca. So all of those three places are, uh, are great places to find me. Fantastic. Well, Joshua, again, thank you so much for coming on the Myth, Legends and Lore podcast today, and I do hope that you'll return in the future. But until then, I'll leave you with Joshua Gillingham, The Gatewatch, and the wonderful song of the Nidaville. Chapter 1. Ascent. The mist on the mountain settled low as the damp morning chill turned to drizzling rain. Through the fog, three figures made their way up a narrow mountain pass on horseback. From under the hood of his dew-drenched, coal-gray cloak, each one watched his white breath swirl and rise before it joined the surrounding mist. One of the dim gray figures coughed violently and yanked his horse to a halt. With frozen fingers, he fumbled for a sip of fire meat. Finding his flask empty, he tore it off the strap and hurled it far into the mist. Damn this cold. Damn this fog, said another. He stopped close behind, drew it a flask, and tossed it to his companion. And damn these stinking horses! The leading figure, now thirty paces ahead, tugged gently at the rings. As his horse turned to face the others, a swirl of fog danced around its ankles. He lifted his hood and squinted. Even from such a short distance, they were hardly visible. However, despite the foul weather, he could hear the click of every buckle, clasp, and hoofbeat echo between the flat rock faces. As for the cold and the fog, I'm afraid there isn't much I can do about that. However, as far as horses go, you're certainly welcome to walk. The trailing figure gargled the last of the fire meat and gulped it down. And damn you, Torrent Ten Trees! The other two laughed, and soon all were on their weary way once again. The airy cliffs of Norhaven were far behind them now. The soft rush of wind over the fields around Jarl Einar Tentree's wood-fired hall had long since given way to the towering trees of Stagwood Forest. Then came the river Noros, which cut through the hills, its rushing waters as quick and strong as a rugged stallion. For a few days they had followed the river, often stopping to rest at shanty inns and thatched roof villages. Now it had been two days since they had left those rushing waters to start the slow, steady ascent up Shadowstone Pass. Every hour since, the air had grown colder, the rocks rougher, and the trees more scarce. Torin passed both reins to his right hand so that he could draw his cloak together with his left. As he did, a trickle of water rushed down the front of his hood and splashed onto his exposed hand. The back of his cloak had long since soaked through and now weighed heavy on his shoulders, icy cold and heavy as chainmail. His woven pants stuck to his skin, and both his boots were beginning to fill up with frigid mountain rain. He and his two companions had spent the previous night in a shallow cave at the bottom of Shadowstone Pass. Now he fondly recalled the roar of the fire, the last great chunk of salted pork, and the bitter malted ale. These were all luxuries whose weight they could not afford on the steep ascent. In just a few short hours, those comforts seemed as far off as his father's hall. As the path leveled off... Torin hoped they had reached the crest, but soon it began to climb again, this time much steeper than before, up and up into the mist. The jagged stones grew sharper, and at times the path became so narrow that Torin's boots would scrape against the rocks along the edge. Even the horses, sure-footed as any, started to slip and stumble. 
The companion who trailed farthest behind now coughed again and cleared his throat. It's a wonder any survived the journey up Shadowstone Pass to defend Gatewatch. Who would have the strength to fight trolls after this ascent? The second companion laughed. Grimsa, it seems we should have asked your mother to pack along some warm milk and sugar to soothe you. Though, lacking her, perhaps you could play the part, Torin. Honestly, Bryn, I don't envy his mother, Torin said. Nor do I envy his horse. If that steed's spine isn't crooked from his weight, its ears must soon be deaf from his whining. By or and all the gods, Torin Tentries, I'll knock your brains out if we ever make it over these damn mountains. The wit has long abandoned you. Your brawn is never in short supply, Grimsa. I'll give you that, said Bryn. Bryn, you twig-legged, spindly, sparrow-minded twat. Remember, I'll have to bash my way through you to get to Torin on this narrow path. I give you the last of my fire meat, and this is what I get in return. I suppose to lend to a bear and expect honey in return is a fool's mistake. Grimsa sighed and growled, as he often did, whenever he had exhausted his best insults. Aye, fools you are, both of you, soaked from head to toe and still giggling like a pair of tavern maids. How I've offended the gods to deserve friends like you, I can't say. Bryn and Torin laughed as they continued up the winding trail. At midday, the air was thinner, and the glittering frost that glazed the dark rock faces started to melt. Though the fog was heavy, they could faintly see the sun now at its pinnacle in the sky above. Patches of snow beside the path shone when dim light broke through, while the rest of the light fell into the empty spaces between the black boulders. Off the side of the trail, Torrin thought he saw shapes like snakes sliding through the stones. He shook his head and kept his eyes fixed on the path ahead. Torrin could hear Bryn's teeth chatter behind him. He turned in his saddle and saw Bryn's long, slender nose sticking out from under his hood. Despite the cold, his companion still smiled a devilish grin, his teeth eerily white. It seemed that they all needed some distraction from the miserable trail. Torn called back to his companions. Which of us do you think will be the first to slay a troll? Oh, I'll be the first, no doubt, Grimsa said, though that should hardly be a surprise. We Yarnskalds are born troll hunters. My father slew eight during his time in the Gatewatch, and my older brother five. Torn chuckled and shouted through the mist. You need more than strength to kill a troll. You need a keen eye and a quick wit. Bryn whistled and pretended to pull a bowstring. A keen eye have I and a sharper arrow. While you two are being smashed to bits, I'll be up in a tree raining fire from above. Grimsus snorted and shook his head. Arrows won't pierce a troll's hide. It's as thick as mail. Nothing but a long, sturdy, goose-necked axe will do. I doubt you can even lift one. Ha! We'll see about that, Bryn said. What I know is that accuracy is more important than force. My grandfather used to say that every troll had a weak spot. If you can find it and you're quick, you need only a knife. Well, my uncle, who, mind you, has killed no less than ten trolls single-handedly, has told me plenty of stories, and none of them involve killing a troll with a prick of a pin. Torin looked back at Grimsa and grinned. Ten trolls. When you talked about your uncle last night, it was eight trolls, same as your father. He must have been busy to have slain two more in that time. Grimsa's face flushed red, and he threw up his hands. Eight, ten. What does it matter? The point is that trolls are thick-skinned, stone-headed, bloodthirsty beasts. Bryn twisted around in his saddle and smirked at Grimsa. Now that you say that, it occurs to me that perhaps you are descended from a troll. That would explain a lot. Torin laughed. None of us have even seen the troll, but enough banter. Let's put some weight on this. I propose that we three agree to a pact. Whoever kills a troll first, the other two shall keep him two drinks in hand till he can no longer stand. Agreed? 
Grimsa perked up for the first time that morning. The thought of mead, ale, or wine always cheered him up. Agreed. Of course, Bryn said. If you two are really feeling so generous towards me, then how can I refuse? Another gust of wind brought with it soaking sheets of mountain rain, and the mood soured again. With this turn came memories of relatives and friends who'd been killed fighting trolls, and morbid thoughts of how they too could soon be troll fodder. For a long while, they continued to climb up in miserable silence. Stop, said Bryn. He yanked on his reins and held up his hand. Listen. Grimms' horse sputtered and clicked its hooves against the stone a moment more before there was silence. All three companions felt a swell of tension in their shoulders, and each strained his ears for any sound. Dancing across the icy rocks came a melody, quick and haunting, which chilled their already icy bones. A gang of voices, low and terse, filled the empty air. Ruby rare with blood red gleam, amethyst and emerald green, and a light with rainbow swirl, obsidian and night black pearl. Hum, 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 hum. Gold of fair with sun bright hue, silver just like drops of dew, copper filled with fiery glow, and iron to dig deep below, lead the earth dry as bone till we've broken. Secret depths are known, and every treasure's safe at home. Hum, 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 hum. Drops of honeyed amber find, and diamonds of the rarest kind. To walk near, then come treasure bring, and watch him forge a magic ring. Hum, 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 hum. Coats of mail and axes broad, steel plate and iron rod. Dragons cast spears and arrows sharp as glass. Lead the earth dry as foam till we've broken every stone. Till the secret depths are known and every treasure's safe at home. And every treasure's safe at home. As always, you can get in touch via Twitter at Laura Myth. Our email is mlegendlore at gmail.com. I'm Siobhan Clark, and thank you for listening to the Myth, Legend and Lore podcast. <laughs>